um, we have not just been talking about for about the last, I don't know, six weeks or so, the rhythm of compassion. We've been trying to practice the rhythm of compassion because what is belief without an action? What is it when we say we believe something but have no demonstration of it? And so we have kind of constructed the idea of seven rhythms that I contend that if we would... Um, that we would practice these things, uh, they might form Christ in us, ideally. But if we would practice these things individually and collectively, that it, would, it, it could be impactful for the kingdom of God around us. And so one of our seven rhythms is this rhythm of compassion, to which I would say it's a really hard thing to teach on. It's like trying to teach on prayer. Okay, here's the recipe for prayer, and you're like, that feels really theoretical until you actually engage in prayer. And the same is true with compassion. Now, we've launched into a series called The New Normal, and the new normal was uh, a response to the resurrection of Christ. Because one man's act over 2,000 years ago, I believe, set in motion a promise for all of us that we can live into again and again and again. That the notion that we can just simply be born again is a myth at least once and for all, the notion that we can be born again and again and again is part of God's design, that we could be made new. Because if we're honest, and this is just reviewing to catch us up on where we've been, my heart, I think all of our hearts, has a gravitational pull towards being calloused and being insulated because I don't like being affected too much by things. The world and my life and the struggles and the circumstances are hard enough to let my heart get maybe broken. So we callous up our hearts, and yet I would contend that God wants to break our hearts for all the right reason, in all the right places, so that we can be made new. But to experience new life, sometimes we need a new normal, do we not? Most times we experience a new normal because we go through a certain life crisis. Maybe it's a, a health report. Maybe it's um, a pink slip that we get and, and all of a sudden we're unemployed and there's great financial uncertainty and we just recalibrate the way we spend and the way we budget. Maybe it comes because we relocate across the country and we start over relationally and spiritually um, and, and we go through a new normal, right? Because what's happened is there's this movement towards desperation, movement towards openness, because we feel so vulnerable. And so I'm saying maybe one of the best ways we can proactively experience new life is practice a little compassion. Because in compassion, we begin to resensitize our hearts to the things that I think are sensitive to God's heart. And so today, I want to talk about the God who sees. Um, and uh, um, I had said earlier, and in my study and in my preparation for this, um, the Hebrew word for compassion comes to us out of the Old Testament, where the Hebrew word has a, a, a root translation from the word womb. That is, all of us, male or female, have the capacity to be generative in life. That is, we have the capacity to bring, to author, to create moments of life, both in our case and in the case of another. 
That's a powerful realization when you realize that the God of the universe has imparted to us the ability to be co-creators with him. And you think, well, what's a little compassion here and there? I think it's one of the things that keeps our hearts fresh, sensitive, maybe even tears for all the right reasons, but it's also the thing that gives another hope, respite, relief, or a little bit of encouragement if we stop and allow it to interrupt our lives. Now, I would contend that compassion often feels like an interruption, if not an inconvenience, because it often leaves us feeling vulnerable, does it not? We're not sure how it's going to be received. We're not sure, um, we're not sure if the gesture is going to be understood or, or well-stewarded. But when we give of ourselves, when we give of our time, when we give of our resources, we put ourselves out there. And what we're putting ourselves out there is not towards the person's response towards us, to the to the faithfulness of God who's been faithful in our lives and we're just making his provision available to others. I want to go through a passage and, and start working through. I want to talk tonight about hope or compassion as, as, um, compassion as salvation. I want to talk about compassion as, um, as healing and then talk about compassion as advocacy. Uh, and, and maybe you've never thought of it in, in those terms, but I think one of the things that compassion does is it reveals God's heart for the world. And um, salvation, when we begin to talk about what does it mean to be saved, salvation isn't just supposed to be for our benefit. That is, I got some kind of fire insurance policy to avoid going to hell. No, salvation is for the benefit of others. So to be saved is to actually be an ambassador of God's hope for the world. And so we pray, God, make us people of hope. Uh, I came across a story, and it, ca and it came out several years ago, um, in 2008, and I thought this was such a good illustration of compassion, um, because compassion, again, is something that's meant to be practiced. It's a story written by a British journalist, and it was written in 2008, and was published in the Times in, uh, in England, um, and he's an atheist writer, or an atheist person, who writes a, 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 a kind of an article, and the title of the article was um, Why Africa Needs God. And he had this really interesting commentary as someone who had been born in Africa, but had now moved to England and then had gone back to visit. And he had this fantastic commentary as a, as a professed atheist over why Africa needed God. And he said these words, and I'll just read you part of it, but if you just wanted to Google it, Why Africa Needs God by Matthew Paris uh, with two R's. He said, now I'm a confirmed atheist. I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, or international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is a part of the package. But Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school or, or say the world would be better without it. 
I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this didn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It is also transferred to the flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely and which I cannot help but observing. And then he goes on to illustrate sort of how it has penetrated culture from sort of a native perspective. It was fascinating. But he says, and he concludes with this, those who want Africa to walk tall amid the 21st century global competition must not kid themselves that providing the material means or even the know-how that accompanies what we all call development will make change. A whole belief system must first be supplanted. And I'm afraid that it has to be supplanted by another. Removing Christian evangelism from the African equation, listen, may leave the continent at the mercy of a malign fusion of Nike, the witch doctor, the mobile phone, and the machete. This is an atheist testifying to the transformational work of the, of the gospel message combined with acts of compassion. And what he's basically commenting on is, is the idea that Christ followers have demonstrated the kind of joy, engagement, the kind of hope, the kind of generosity, the kind of disappearance of corruption, the kind of peace, and the capacity to serve others. Even, even though he doesn't believe in God, he could attest to the power of transformation and the Christian ability to simply make a difference with acts of kindness and compassion. Does it make a difference? I love what Mother Teresa had said years ago when she says, man, what, you know, what difference does this work do? I mean, the, the, the needs in Calcutta, India are so great. And she says, it, doesn't it just feel like, like drops in the ocean and, or drops in a bucket or drops in the ocean? And she simply says, well, but the ocean is made of drops. <laughs> are you just going to keep getting mad or keep feeling injustice or just start collecting drops? That, that makes a difference. And I would say that, you know, in response to this, it's the, it's the wisdom of Christ um, that we have to see the trajectory of human history and is eager to step into people's lives and simply impart hope. So the goal of Mission Hills, the goal of a community of practice is that we might have a living faith, not a static one, not a passive one, but a living faith. As we go about our lives, we become people of hope. We become people of healing. I don't know if that's part of your Christian identity, but I hope that we could acquire that. Whether it be because we have resources in a good neighbor fund or because we have a community that I can call on to help a neighbor move. It's an understanding, being able to see the needs, the opportunities, and the resources that we do have. Now, a, a good passage comes out of Gen Gen Genesis chapter 16. And um, often we think of um, salvation as only a spiritual condition, but salvation is is, is so much broader than that, at least how Jesus brought it. Jesus brought salvation to people, whether it be because of a physical ailment or whether it be because of an emotional one or whether they were um, in a financial straits. There was something that Jesus was bringing liberty to and freedom to, and I would simply contend under the umbrella of salvation, although I do believe salvation has a distinctly spiritual component to it as well. In Genesis chapter um, 16, we have the story out of Abraham's journey. Abraham had this profound promise that was slow in, in kind of developing. 
there had been Abraham with this barren wife, Sarah, that you will be a father of many nations, except years had passed. Probably about 12 or 13 years had already gone by, and nothing was actually taking place in these aging people. To which Sarah, under her own sort of power, under her own sort of control issues, sort of inserts her Egyptian maidservant into his tent at night and says, honey, maybe this is God's provision. Let's go have. And so he's like, sure, that sounds good to me. If, if you're, you have no problem with that, I have no problem with that. And, and so, um, well, then Sarah gets, gets jealous and starts to harass her and starts to give her a hard time. Um, and so she runs. Um, she runs out into the wilderness to the desert and um, it's kind of a one-way street. Now, you read it again in Genesis 21, where she brought the baby with her, just lying just to die, and hit him under a bush, and went over. Um, and it's a tragic story of abuse, of neglect. Um, and, and yet, what we see is the heart of God revealed. God made the promise to Abraham and Sarah, not the maidservant, but God shows up in God's faithfulness in both camps. Listen to what we read in just these verses. We'll pick it up in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near the spring in the desert, because where else are you going to go if you're in a desert, arid region? I'm going to camp out by a spring. And it was, uh, and it was the spring uh, is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, listen, here's two questions. Where have you come from and where are you going? answers one of the questions. I'm running away from my mistress Sarah, she answered. She bought a one-way ticket. There is not a round trip here. I want to get the hell out of here. So we see someone running from a hellish condition, a hellish existence, looking for freedom, looking for a reprieve, looking for aid, and she's out by herself in the desert. God meets her with a spring, which could only be kind of poetic in that God is aiding her, kind of that, I will get almost like another woman at the well we know of from New Testament times, kind of offering a sort of living water. And then um, he just kind of concludes with, and he talks about all these promises, then verse 13 he says, she gave, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So the first thing we see is God asking two questions, and she only answers the one because she's got a one-way ticket. And, and the first thing I would say is, even though God sees us, God sees your plight, God sees me, even though God sees it, it doesn't always get easier. And what he does is he redirects her back to camp with Abraham and Sarah. That's the last place she probably wants to go. She's got this one-way ticket out of her. God says, I see the abuse. I see the neglect. I see that you're 14 and being thrown into a grown older man's tent. I get it. Now go back, because I see. See, God always sees the most vulnerable among us. God sees the cry of the oppressed. God sees um, the exploited. God sees the need long before and to greater extent than even we do. And so she responds with this, some, it would be an interesting interview, but she responds with this assurance to be able to say, I've now seen the God who sees me. 
So oftentimes we talk about having a personal relationship with God. And oftentimes you often see in scripture that God is referring to a communal love of his people. But in the most personal ways to an Egyptian even, not an, Isra an Israelite, God has this personal encounter, this personal endearing kind of comfort says, don't worry, I see. So I'm not sure of what anxiety you brought in here tonight, what sort of burden you carry tonight. I would simply say that the first time, the principle of first mention that we have in scripture of the God who sees, he meets her in her desperation. And the first thing he does is call her out, but then send her back to where she came saying, I'm with you. It won't necessarily be easy, but I'm with you. Which is to say, we will go through storms, we will go through rough times, but it's also an opportunity to let me shine and let me become your, your sense of dependency. So I would say that God has a way of seeing exactly what you see. God sees abuse, God sees injustice, God sees um, greed, and God sees all of the things that have a way of turning your stomach. I think God sees the war in Iraq, and God sees um, genocide, and he sees beheadings. God sees human trafficking, and he sees child soldiers. He sees the thing that make, make you just want to shake your fist at the world. And God sees all of that even as much and more than we do. I think God sees the mistakes we're about to make, and he sees the career paths that we've chosen. God sees the prodigals, and he sees the runaways. God sees exactly what you see and more. So what's the point about seeing then? Because just like God, we're given the ability to see all of this stuff and it makes us angry. In fact, does it not sometimes make us shake our fist at God? I mean, maybe we shake it at Washington, or maybe we shake it at liberals, or maybe we shake it at, you know, the, the one percenters. Whatever your issue is, we have a way of shaking our fist, and we say, why would God allow this to happen? Or we, we wonder, how could God, is God asleep on his throne? To which I would just offer this by way of suggestion, trying to be provocative, but I think I'm right. What if a large part of what we see and what we feel about abuse, scarcity, greed, injustice, all of that is supposed to be a way to help us see what God sees. And then part of that sense of outrage you're feeling is God's courtship and invitation to be a part of his restoration, to be a part of his solution. Does that mean we solve world hunger? Nope. Does it mean we feed someone hungry in a parking lot? Maybe. Does it mean that we somehow respond to the AIDS pandemic in Africa? Mm, maybe. Or does it mean that we get involved in somehow some kind of sexual education here? I don't know. But the point is that for what we feel outrage toward, for what we feel injustice towards, God has given each of us the ability to see 
and feel, and all I'm speculating is perhaps that is God's lens stirring in your heart and inviting you to be a part of his salvation on earth. So what does that look like? I don't know. It could be a look, look like a lot of things. It could, it, it could look like a distribution of a $20 Walmart card to give someone a just best part of their day. Or um, it could mean sponsoring someone in need of education. Maybe, maybe it means coming alongside someone in, in, in a developing nation. Maybe it means sitting on the board uh, of a nonprofit. Maybe it means working with orphans domestically who, who, who have uh, an overseas outreach. I don't know what it is, but what I do know is this. There are causes that don't move me. Do you ever have those conversations with people and you're like, dang, they are passionate about that, and I've yawned over that. And you're like, that's a big deal to them. And I feel like I, sh I should feel more conviction over that. that, that yeah, they're right. They make a really good case. But somehow God just hasn't stirred my heart for it. And yet I get astounded that people don't care about this. Could that not be God's unique wiring and his invitation to be a part of his salvation, his restoration, and his redemption? That's the beauty of the body of Christ. That's the uniqueness of who you are. But that's part of Christian identity. Let me just pause real quick. I want to set up a video. It's about three minutes long. And it fits so well. It's, an, it's a, um, an international company that started with the name Hagar, right out of this chapter. And it's in Cambodia. It has since grown. Um, it's been around for over 20 years. It started in 1994. And what they were seeing was all of the abuse and the violence towards women in Cambodia. It has grown to Afghanistan. It's grown to, um, oh, uh, it's grown to like four countries. And now they've even started it for boys, too. And it's a response to the most vulnerable among them. Well, they started, and they brought them off the street, and they're just creating um, a, an organization. And then it became an international. You can go to hagarinternational.org. And they created a whole clothing line because they wanted to create not just a place of relief. It started as a shelter, and then it grew into a clothing line where they started making handbags and all these other things simply because they wanted to communicate that we see the need. And this was someone who understood Christian compassion and understood the biblical text, because where God attaches his name, he also attaches his being. It's not one without the other. There is no hypocrisy in who God is. And so I love when scripture comes alive in the most tangible ways. Just watch this three-minute video of this organization called Hagar International. In the early 90s, I had the opportunity to visit Cambodia. Um, I took a trip in the far northeast of the country, uh, where I was told there are the uh, biggest problems in terms of uh, malnutrition and uh, suffering among women and children. Now, we took an interview. I researched about 100 women, trying to find out what was the reason? Why were they in the street begging with their children? And the reason number one was not so much poverty. The reason number one was violence. 
violence in the home. They were beaten up, they were abused. Some of them were kicked out by their husbands to bring in a younger wife in. They would just come to Phnom Penh with their children to seek to make a living. But as they came to the streets of Phnom Penh uh, with this terrible situation, the violence, the abuse, the lack of food, the situation got so bad and worse that, that uh, even kids would die. Uh, that that's basically speaks of tremendous human suffering, tremendous uh, silent suffering of, of, of women and children. And so I decided to open up a shelter for these Hagers who are, were fleeing with their children and basically bringing the message of comfort of don't be afraid, we're going to take care of you. Soon as we uh, started to see women and young girls go into vocational training, we soon find out that their ability to reintegrate in society was very, very difficult, particularly because of the problem of stigmatization that prevent socially the full integration of these women and, and, and young girls. Uh, also, the, the state of the economy, the lack of jobs, and the corruption make it very difficult for them to actually find a way to have a hope and a future. So I basically we came up with the idea, why don't we start our own businesses, for-profit businesses that would be set up for the purpose to create jobs for these particular women and girls whom we seek to help. And so that we can see the full circle of from the street, from a brothel, all the way to a meaningful employment where they can get a reasonable wage and they see the children going to school and so they will be totally off the cycle of poverty. What we have today is basically a full commercial industrial forms of these businesses that were launched about five years ago. With Hagar Craft first, we fully commercialized it and became Hagar Design that produced uh, hand-woven silk uh, products for our home accessories and home furnishing and women bags and stuff. So we're now being able to sell in the United States, in London, Switzerland, Australia, and in Japan. In all in all, we create more than 300 jobs. So it's very, very exciting to see this uh, concept uh, working uh, fully here in Cambodia. We are specialized on the Hager, the individual mother, the individual mother and the child who have escaped and flees from war, uh, displacement, violence and abuse. And we want her, and our focus is her and her alone, to, to get uh, there where she can have uh, uh, a future and a hope. Hmm. Such a great picture of what it means to just practice compassion and, and, and live out the, 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 the scripture narrative here. Um, so I just want to shift real quick to the idea of um, compassion as healing. Um, the Apostle Paul writes uh, in, in Ephesians 1.18, and, and, and he talks about it this way, and he says, um, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that they may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. There is this really interesting way that the Apostle Paul begins to talk about our sight. Now, um, because we're created in the image of God, I believe God wants us to see like he sees. 
And so Paul, I think, is scratching the surface of this when he begins to say, I pray that they would, and again, this is to the church he started, but now that he's sort of discipling them from afar and he's teaching them, he's wanting them, he's not talking about a physical sight. He's talking about another kind of seeing. Seeing, not with my natural eyes, but seeing with these spiritual eyes. And it implies that there's just this other way to see. See, I think cynics and skeptics see with human eyes. Christians have the ability to see with the Holy Spirit and what God's heart is. Christians can understand that the world that God intended in Genesis 1 and 2 is not the world that we're living in. And, and what has happened is sin entered in and it just fractured everything and we're living with an economy of, of shame and fear and regret. And that wasn't actually the world that God intended. It's the world that he created, but he's been trying to restore and repair it. Paul writes to the Ephesian church and to us with this appeal to see differently. And so I think it's a strong kind of encouragement to us. It's a, it's a strong sort of application to us that we would begin to see differently, that we would begin to experience things differently. I am not a wine connoisseur. I have a hard time telling the difference between mm, a $10 bottle of wine and a $100 bottle of wine. Uh, I wish I had some kind of sophistication like that, but there's not a lot of nuance. But if I'm concentrating and if I read the label, I can start to pick out little nuances. Do you have this happen to you? Ooh, there's some plum in there. I tasted plum. I'm proud of myself right now. Oh, there, yes, yes, there is a spice in there. What is that? Whatever. Um, I am not some kind of sommelier. I'm not some kind of connoisseur. But there is a layered approach to what you're tasting, a very sophisticated palate. Similarly, I think the same happens in our spiritual lives. We see in layers. In fact, I would consider spiritual maturity to be able to see things maybe on a more redemptive level, a more restorative level, that maybe their problem isn't just their problem. Maybe they did have bad circumstances. Maybe they do battle mental illness. I don't know what it, why they're in the plight that they are, but maybe their problem is my problem. Or maybe God wants me to be a part of a solution. I think that's part of God's invitation towards us. And so Paul's prayer is about Christians seeing God's purpose and his power and learning to see, and this is what I've been saying, the needs, the opportunities, and our own resources uniquely and differently. Um, maybe one observation we can make is our emotions. How we feel about it is never an end in itself. I think emotions are supposed to lead us somewhere, not just get us stuck and be pissed off. I think emotions are supposed to lead us somewhere to maybe be in a part of care, if that's stirring in us. Um, so then the last thing I would say is um, compassion as advocacy. And I think a Christian's perspective is that simply we're all needy and broken. We don't help because we have so much, though we might have a lot to give, and maybe by a first world standard, we, we do. But we help because we're not that different. Once we understand what Romans talks about, that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, we all are sort of this level playing field of brokenness and need, then all of a sudden it reconditions our heart to be able to see differently. And we begin to resonate with the God who sees because he's 
manifesting himself in us and inviting us to be a part of that restoration. Over the last month, we've had a chance, in small part, to be a part of restoration. I told you a, a month ago, right before we were about to pass out the gift cards, uh, I get an email from Sherilyn saying, hey, I've got an opportunity. Should, what should I do with, I've got $300 of new normal money that I've saved from fasting my Starbucks and fasting all these expenditures. And I'm like, well, go help. Go provide temporary housing for a relief, you know, a flood victim. Go provide meals for them. Go, do. Is, is that just a good person with a good heart? Yeah, but is that also the Holy Spirit giving her eyes to see differently and use the resource? Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, the, the story of Hagar and this company, it's just one guy seeing women getting beat up and saying, someone's got to do something about that. How could God allow this to happen? Or maybe I could use my business acumen and create business, sustainable business models to end this. Um, and so uh, I think there's this subtle temptation to think somehow we deserve what we have. It's that somehow what we have or, or what, uh, what we've earned is, is ours. And, and I would simply say that the problem with this kind of way of thinking, and I know I'm talking to a room of hard workers, I know I'm talking to a room full of people that don't see themselves as entitled, but if we see ourselves as just sort of like, I've worked hard for what I have, then I would say it has a way of desensitizing our hearts and missing the opportunity to demonstrate God's care. And Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and he says, what do you have that you did not receive? That was a really convicting verse for me to read. Because I'm like, hey, 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 yeah, I had a college education, but I worked hard. Or, yeah, I put to, you know, no, no, no. What did I do to deserve clean drinking water? What did I do to deserve the access to the world's best health care, as flawed as it might be? What did I do to deserve my next breath and my last one? It's just God's grace. It's by God's grace. And Paul writes to this church in Corinth saying, what, did you what do you have that you did not receive? And I think the uniqueness of Paul as he began to grow in his own spiritual maturity was that Paul could see both his successes, which he was very successful, like an Ivy Leaguer would be successful, but also his struggles, of which they were severe, physically and otherwise. He could see those and it not compromise either his faith in God, his trust in God, or his belief in God. There was a way that he began to see all the circumstances of his life as still being found in Christ. So uh, the rhythm of compassion, I hope, begins to help us advocate uh, for a new heart. And uh, I don't think we are going to solve any one problem with $20 gift cards but I did want to resensitize our hearts. I, I made a declaration that I think resurrection is, is part of all of our story, that we can all experience new life. And um, I wanted to experiment with what does it mean to live into the resurrection? What does it mean to live with the power and authority of a resurrected Christ? Because I think that's supposed to be all of our stories. So um, here's what I want to do. Just I want to make it kind of giant living room time and um, have a little bit of sharing. Maybe some of you gave away a, a gift card. Maybe some of you applied some resources in another way. I would love to hear your story. And, and here's what I'd love to hear. Uh, number one, 
who did you meet? Did you, did you, do you have a name that you could share with us? I met this person. Um, what did you hear? What was their need? But could you see what their real need was? Could you see what their heart was saying beyond a handout? That's part of learning a story. That's part of hearing or seeing maybe on a layered or deeper level. And then third, how can you pray? And when we finish tonight, I want to pray for those who receive tonight. I'll go first. Uh, I met a guy, Bjorn and I did, by the name of William, William Morris. And the funny thing is, is that I didn't go looking for him, he found me. So if you've studied the person of peace principle, it's funny who God prepares for you uh, and who shows up. Why? Because my heart had been prepared, my son's heart had been prepared, and this guy knew to ask us. It was an interesting situation. Uh, Bjorn and I uh, had gone out to dinner last Friday night. We were downtown. Uh, we caught the happy hour at Ruth's Chris. Um, and because, you know, that $10 burger is one of the best things in town. Rivals Hop Dotty, just saying. My son's a hamburger connoisseur. And so he took me on his dime with his gift card. So we had this great little father-son moment. And we're walking back to our car. And um, get in the car... And there's lots of street people, and, you know, it was just, you know, 6.30, so it was kind of winding up the week, and this guy does the number coming up right on our car door, and um, I'm, I'm in my truck, and he, you know, he comes up knocking, right? And I don't know about you, but I have the initial reaction of um, callousness. Uh, how, ca how can I, how can I get out of this uh, without having to give in to this? Because... All of a sudden, my sort of analysis over, I'm getting pitched, I'm getting taken, like this is a story he's, you know, rehearsing, this, it's a scam, you know, all those things. Um, but he comes up to the window, and, I, you know, I, I roll it down, and, and um, one thing led to another. He tells his story. He says, I've recently moved here from Corpus Christi with my wife. I said, well, are you homeless? Semi-homeless. Three nights a week, we stay at the homeless shelter right there in downtown. Um, uh, you know, he, he came here with like $25 in his pocket. He, he has a window washing business. And he says, it's hard because there's so many homeless that want to wash your windows. I have a legitimate business. I have my wife sitting with $250 worth of window washing business. And I said, well, that's good. And he says, I don't do any drugs. And, and he showed me his arms. And um, his arms were covered with um, a pink lotion because he had took a side job and got poison ivy. And his legs were covered in it, and he says, he's just looking for work. He's not doing drugs. He's semi-homeless. And all of a sudden, I just felt a kind of legitimacy about it. I don't th think he was trying to hustle me. And then that's where God starts to tug at my heart, like, does it matter if he's hustling? So here's me. I start to reach into my billfold, and... Um, well, I'll at least give this guy a $5 bill. I, I had a five. Um, and Bjorn sitting next to me is like, Dad, <laughs> um, a student, um, you know, clearly remedial learner. Uh, and, and I go, what? You and he goes, Dad, I, what about one of the cards? And I was like, do you, do you have a card? I, I did not have any cards with me because I had been passing them out to all, all of you. And I, I was like, you've got a card on you? And so um, we gave him the card, and, and so then we started talking about his business. He's got a business called All About the Pains, P 
P-A-N-E-S, because he's got a, a window watching. So I would just offer to you, by way of public announcement and, and, and business solicitation, if any of you have windows to wash, I would love to employ William Morris and his wife for a little gainful employment, um, if that is your thing. If you have some business or home that you would like your windows washed, I, I know a guy that I'd like to at least give an opportunity to. But that was our experience. And I felt like I got interrupted and it felt inconvenience. And then all of a sudden I felt like, oh, no, 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 no. This was supposed to happen this way. And so I've been thinking about William. I've been thinking I have a friend who has actually an industrial window washing business that I want to talk to and say if he needs a full-time employee because this guy is a hard worker. Uh, and we went down on the map and we found the nearest Walmart and he knew where the Walmart was because he had been to the Home Depot to get window washing supplies. And that was my story. Does anyone else have a, have a, have a moment uh, over the last month where you got interrupted or you sought out someone with a gift card or something else where you kind of were, your heart was sort of pushed to be resensitized to the interruption? This is the living room. Yeah, Haley. Walter Mitty? It was like Walter Mitty moments? Walter Mitty? I want a story. But, um, but I didn't want her to feel like, you know, 
what's, what's her name? Tina. Tina. Okay, that's good. Anyone else? I wanted to be able to hear a few of these uh, before we wrap up tonight. Just a quick shout out for any any moments. Yeah, John. Yeah. And I, I find that, and it's sort of that Oscar Schindler moment where you get to the end and you're like, oh, I could have done more. It was just like, oh, it's only 20 bucks. You, should, you know, it just feels, but, but again, I think that's part of how God courts us into his plan and, and being willing. It's a great start. Who else? Yeah, Heather. But there was something about your pursuit of him. Because yeah. you know a lot of doors, literally or figuratively, had already closed. And so someone, I found him. Like, I was looking for you. you know. Yeah, faith as a practice. Maybe if you weren't with her, it would have been like, oh, well, Lord, find someone else for me or whatever, and just keep going. Yeah. Anyone else? You guys wanna, we got one last song we can uh, play, but anyone else have a story that you want to share with us? Yeah, Greg. A little louder.
Well, and so many times we look at people who we think maybe are lazy, you know, she's morbidly obese or whatever, and we go, why don't they just work harder? Or if they would just pull their act together, they can make something of their life. Or if she wasn't so flaky or, you know, and all of a sudden you see the testimony of a life of, of connecting people and resourcing people. Um, and those are win-win relationships, I think, for, for people who have probably too much <laughs> and people who have not enough. But w what a convicting testimony to stumble across and kind of resensitize his heart. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, I think there's going to be more opportunity next week. We're uh, meeting in tribes, and I think there's uh, some uh, kind of outreach opportunities going on there. I, our tribes are gathering in, in, in places to kind of do a, a blessing and a serving. I know the North Tribe is putting together some birthday boxes for the CPS children who are, you know, a bunch of orphans who the state won't celebrate their birthday. And I think the South Tribe is doing uh, something somewhat similar for foster care. So there's some neat things. I think part of this could be, let's keep sharing the stories. Let's keep telling the stories and finding more of these moments where God just sort of interrupts us. But uh, you have one more song for us. Can you le lead us home? And uh, hey, um, uh, Haley, where are we eating tonight? We're going to Torchy's right up on Anderson Mill, so, uh, or Spicewood, excuse me, Spicewood, uh, if you want to come have uh, dinner with us afterward, and then next week we'll be uh, in, in tribes um, doing some outreach stuff, so thanks for coming out tonight. Let's.